Hey, Pod Academy listeners, uh, you're listening to a recording that was first broadcast for the show Ideas Books. And it's an interview I did with economist and Nobel Prize winner Alvin Roth. He's a remarkable man, and I really hope you enjoy this interview. You are listening to Ideas Books. My name's Craig Barfoot. The author of today's book, Alvin Roth, or Al, as he asked me to call him, he's a remarkable man. He received the Nobel Prize in 2012 for economics, and he's dedicated a career in working in economic markets where little or no money is involved, like marriages or school allocations, and who gets a kidney transplant from the desperately short supply of kidneys that we have. His new book is called Who Gets What and Why? And the reason I guess I do this show is the chance to be able to speak and learn from great human beings. And Al is definitely one of those. And he is worth listening to for the next 20 or so minutes of your life. But first, a quick word from the people that help this show to be here. If you're looking for a web host, you should check out Green Geeks. You get unlimited space, email, and free domain starting from $3.96 a month. And they're super environmentally friendly. They replace with wind power credits three times the amount of energy your website will use. So if you need a reliable web host, check out greengeeks.com. Al, uh, thank you very much for taking time out of your very busy morning to have a chat with me. Oh, I'm always glad to talk about who gets what. And I should mention to everyone that uh, your perhaps sometimes heavy breathing during this interview is not because you find my questions, um, I don't know, particularly alluring, but rather you're uh, right now walking on a treadmill as we speak. Yes. I walk on a treadmill while I talk on the phone because otherwise my back hurts if I sit still. So th- this this tr- particular treadmill that I'm on is it only goes at two miles an hour. It's a wonderful machine, but it's not an exercise machine. It's a it's a machine to keep moving. <laughs> so I-, I would like to begin today by talking about what you mean when you talk about uh, repugnance in your book, and I guess the importance of uh, public attitudes and morals in determining what economic markets we we even allow. Well, so repugnance is the thing that that keeps me from buying your kidney or you from selling it, even if we both want to do that, even if even if in the course of this conversation, we'd realize that it would be really valuable for me to buy your kidney and and you'd really be willing to sell it at the price I was willing to pay. We'd be violating the law if, if we tried to do that. And that's because other people think we shouldn't do it. And here in the United States, we've just over the last dozen years had a sea change in the way we regard same sex marriage. Right? So a, a marriage is a transaction that some people want to engage in. And it turns out if it's a same-sex marriage, it's a marriage that some people wanted to, to transact with each other uh, and other people didn't think they should. And in the United States, we fought long and bitter battles. It's, it's only this year that it's become legal in every state. Uh, and there's still people in the news who, you know, who, who are refusing to issue marriage licenses, things like that. So, so that's, I think, a good example of a repugnant transaction in which social attitudes have changed in the last dozen years since same-sex marriage first became legal in Massachusetts in 2004. That was the first American state to, to legalize it. Um, I guess I mean, so, my, my broader question is why uh, why this, I mean, this received quite a bit of attention in your book. And, and so why is it so important in, in shaping markets? 
Well, for for hundreds of years in medieval Europe, the church didn't think it was legitimate to charge interest on loans, for example, and and still in some parts of uh, Islamic jurisprudence, uh, interest isn't uh, an allowable transaction. But of course, we'd hardly have the the modern capitalist economy that we have today if we didn't have markets for capital. So that makes a big difference. You know, in the United States, we used to sell slaves. We don't do that anymore. Uh, but it was a part of a, an important part of the agricultural economy in the South. So, so which things you support and which you don't depend, not just determine, not just what choices you make, but what choices you're offered. Right. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm eager to sell my kidney, but I would have to break the law to do so. It's not something I think about often, you know, should I sell my kidney? Uh, but on the other hand, it could be, right? You could think of selling your kidney at the same time you thought of going to the army, you know, as a way of financing your college education, for instance, uh, if it were legal. So what choices we have are determined in part by what markets we allow. And repugnant transactions are markets that that at least some people think we shouldn't allow. And often we don't allow them. You know, there's a, um, I'm standing in California right now. Uh, in California, you can purchase the whole supply chain of a baby. You could buy sperm and eggs, have them artificially inseminated into a surrogate uh, womb, a surrogate mother, and have your name as the father on the California birth certificate. Now, in many places, that's illegal, or if not illegal, you can't pay for each step, so so it's unavailable. You can't pay surrogates in England, for example. So we have fertility tourists from England, people who are desperate to have a child and can't have one the usual way, uh, coming to California, for instance, and, and many more going to India and Thailand and Nepal, where, where this market is available more cheaply than in California. So... So there's something that's repugnant in much of the world, but not in California. So, you know, different things happen in different places and it's worth studying because they're not the same everywhere. These are not iron laws of, of human behavior. And this is uh, this is the area that you have spent your life working in. What, what, what are we calling matching markets? Uh, markets that kind of fall into the area where, where little or no money is involved because we are uncomfortable allowing money in, into these areas. So can you explain this area for us a little bit and how they differ from regular kind of money-driven commodity markets. Making markets into commodity markets makes them able to work in a very arm's length way where the only thing that matters is price. And so the job of the Chicago Board of Trade or the uh, New York Stock Exchange is from moment to moment to find the prices at which supply equals demand for each of the commodities that they sell. But in lots of markets, the markets that I mostly study, that isn't the case. And there are lots of markets in which you can't just choose what you want, even if you can afford it, you also have to be chosen. Labor markets, markets for jobs. Um, you can't just decide to work for Google, you have to be hired. Google doesn't hire its engineers by lowering the wage until supply equals demand and just enough engineers want to come work there. They they have a high wage, they have a very desirable job, but they select among many applicants the people they want. And they can't just choose who they want, they have to compete with Facebook. So lots of markets, college admissions, uh, labor markets, marriage, you can't just choose your spouse, you also have to be chosen. A lot of the most important markets we deal with aren't mediated just by price and are not commodity market. 
and that's why I, I'm delighted to be to be speaking with you today. Because I mean, as an economist or, or as a human being, it's really rare that you can point directly to something that you created that that saves lives. I mean, saves in your case thousands of lives, and that's exactly what you did. And I'm talking about your involvement in the U.S. kidney donor market, a market that people think should not allow people to to buy kidneys. So you had to create a, a system of exchange. So can you go into for me what 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 was the situation like before you came on board? In the United States, we have more than 100,000 people waiting right now for a deceased donor kidney, and we only do about 11,000 deceased donor kidney transplants a year. So if you're waiting for a deceased donor kidney, you wait for years. And you can die while waiting, and thousands of people do. Uh, but but kidneys are a little special in another way, which is that healthy people have two kidneys and can remain healthy with just one. So if you uh, loved someone who was dying from kidney failure, uh, you could perhaps donate them a kidney. Um, you would have to be healthy enough. Not everyone can remain healthy with just one kidney. Um, but not only would you have to be healthy enough, your kidney would have to be compatible with them. You'd have to be able to give the person you loved your kidney. And that's also not something you can do all the time. So the situation before I became involved, if you like, was that there were deceased donor kidneys and they were living donor kidneys from people who, who uh, you know, from people who loved the, the person who needed a kidney and happened to have a compatible kidney. But a lot of times you would be healthy enough to give a kidney, but your kidney wouldn't wouldn't match your intended recipient, and you would just be sent home. And it's that sending home of willing donors that, that we tried to get around because you could be healthy enough to give a kidney, but incompatible with your patient. And I could be in the same situation. And it might be that we could exchange kidneys. I could give a kidney to your patient and you could give a kidney to mine because it might happen that my kidney matched, your patient was compatible with yours and vice versa. And that would allow two transplants to happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise, two kidneys to be donated. Uh, so it would increase the supply of kidneys and save more lives. So what we set up in the US, and there also now is in Australia and in other places, is kidney exchange programs that organize this in a, through centralized clearinghouses, through a marketplace. Now, it's a marketplace that doesn't use money because everywhere in the world, except Iran, um, it's illegal to pay for a, a kidney for transplant. That doesn't mean there aren't black markets where you can buy kidneys, but it's, not, it's against the law. And so kidney exchange is a way of building a matching market for kidneys to increase the supply without using money, without breaking the law. Um, when, when you say exchange, now how, how complicated are these? I mean, in the book you refer to these chains. I mean, so actually, let's take a step back. Could you maybe go into that for, for the folks and just yes. explain what this idea of a chain is and why it's so important? Okay. So the simplest exchange is the kind I just described to you between two incompatible patient donor pairs. But it's sometimes hard to find exchanges in pairs because some people are highly sensitized. Some patients are highly sensitized. It means it's very hard to find a kidney that they can take. Not only don't they match with the kidney of the person who loves them, they hardly match with anyone's kidney. So think of yourself in a big room and you're looking around, and you and your donor, you know, you're, you're a pair, you're looking around the room thinking, is there anyone we can exchange with? If it's a big enough room, there's probably someone who you can give a kidney to. 
you know, there's someone who, who would be compatible with your donor's kidney, and there's someone who could give a kidney to you. There's some donor who, who's compatible with you, but it's unlikely that they are in the same pair because it's just really hard to match kidneys in this room because everyone is highly sensitized. But what you could imagine is that you give a kidney to someone, and they give a kidney to someone else, and they give a kidney to someone else, and you're starting to get a chain going. Now, the trouble with a chain like that is if you start with a patient-donor pair, it has to come back to you. You have to close the, the circle. But increasingly, we're getting non-directed donors. We're getting donors who say, you know, I'd like to give a kidney to someone, and I don't have anyone particular in mind. So an, an, a non-directed donor is just someone who's come along and says, I've got a kidney. You can give it to anyone you want. Yes. So he doesn't need to get it back. And those guys can start chains that don't have to come back to them. And because we have what you could think of as big rooms full of highly sensitized pairs, hard to match pairs, these guys can spark long chains. So we've had chains at this point that have, you know, maybe 70 or 75 surgeries in them. That's uh, half nephrectomies, taking kidneys out and half putting the kidneys in. So, so a chain with say 60 people in the picture has 30 transplants that are sparked by that original non-directed donor who makes it possible for all the incompatible patient donor pairs with highly sensitized patients to to participate in kidney exchange. Because when I was going through your book, you, you were talking at one stage, you had to uh, ensure that all of these operations were occurring at the same time. Yes. So the, the way the law is written in the United States that says you can't buy or sell a kidney, what it actually says is you can't give valuable consideration for a kidney. And what that means in American legal parlance is you can't write a contract on a kidney. So we can't write a contract that says me and my partner will give you a kidney today and you guys will give us a kidney tomorrow. That would not be a legally binding contract. So to make sure that both parts of the exchange go through, which are both regarded in American law as gift, we do them simultaneously, literally simultaneously. So the surgeons get the patients ready, the patients and the donors, they anesthetize them, they perform the initial incisions, and then they make sure that the other parts of the of the exchange are ready, and only when everybody's ready do they go ahead simultaneously. So, so the doctors like, li literally call each other on their phones? or Yes, exactly. Oh, really? So, so to do a simple two-way exchange between one donor, patient donor pair and another requires four operating rooms and four surgical teams because you're doing two nephrectomies and two transplants at the same time. So if you wanted a chain of 60 surgeries, you would need if you had to do it simultaneously, you would you would need 60 operating rooms and surgical teams, and that would be heroic, uh, you know, close to impossible, even in a country the size of the United States, where we have lots of surgical teams, but the patients wouldn't all be in the right places, and you know, it, it would be impossible. So, with a non-directed donor, you don't have to do everything simultaneously because in a non-directed donor chain, you don't give up your kidney until you've gotten one. So now we can string together these chains. And in the US, the, the rate of broken links is about 2%. So it's pretty low. And that allows us, that means that the average chain in the United States now causes about five transplants on average, four point something. Um, so it's a good bet. You know, it's a, it's a good deal, even though every now and then a link is broken. And what we mostly do is we end the chains with a donation to someone on the uh, waiting list. So just as it begins with a donor who doesn't have a particular patient in mind, it can end with a patient who didn't have a particular donor who who was available to give him a kidney. 
you would never you wouldn't have uh, achieved what you've achieved without being somewhat of a perfectionist and and so i was really wondering what frustrates you about your own system well you know as an academic my job is to think about things but as a market designer who wants to see new designs adopted and implemented my job is to help overcome all the little problems that get in the way of of a you know a grand idea that hasn't been fully fleshed out yet and has has problems that make it not quite workable yet between that and something that really is working and is doing a lot of things so so i find myself and and i'm happy to do this this is you know, one one reason to for an economist, an academic economist, to get into market design is to discover all the little gaps between grand ideas and actual implementation. Um, but those little gaps take lots of time, to lots of agreements, lots of conference calls, lots of visits to hospitals, to uh, to iron out. So a lot of my academic life is less solitary and contemplative than it it once might have been. Does that mean your 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 how shall I put this your diplomatic skills have advanced over the years along with your ideas? Well, my diplomatic skills and my communication skills. You know, you started off asking me why write a book, and part of it is so that uh, the next generation of market designers, when when they approach a group of surgeons or educators or whatever, they don't have to start by saying, "You are probably wondering why you're talking to an economist." Well, let me tell you, we <laughs> we try to be helpful. At the moment in in the U.S., you can't legally buy a kidney, um, but. Uh do you, I mean, you, you touched on Iran that you, you can, and do you think we could have a fair and equitable system if people were allowed to buy kidneys? That's the question. Uh, it's a good question. It's one that I have been spending some of my time trying to understand. So let me, so, so let me say that on the one hand, I think that if I were asked to design uh, a market in which, say, only the government could buy kidneys and they would be distributed in some equitable manner. So it wasn't the case that, uh, as it is not today, it wasn't the case that only rich people got kidneys. Uh, and if you could put in regulations that would make sure that there was lots of informed consent and lots of care for the the donor sellers afterward, I think there's a chance at, at making that work well. On the other hand, when you see something that's against the law everywhere in the world, just about everywhere in the world, you ha- it gives you a little pause. You have to think, even if I think I could do this, it might not be so easy to do. So, so there's there are big issues associated with what I call repugnant transactions, which are transactions that some people would like to engage in, and other people who aren't directly affected wouldn't like them to do. And so selling a kidney is just that. It might be that I would like to sell my kidney and you would like to buy it, but it's against the law. It's against the law just about everywhere. So I think that this could be done, but it, but there's but there's lots of ways also to do it badly in ways that would exploit and harm uh, poor and vulnerable people. So those are the, the big flags that you have to think about. How does it work in Iran? So Iran, we don't have as great data as we would like. They've just started to digitize their their data, and the guy who runs it apparently passed away uh, this year. So so talks about getting access to good data have have been stalled. But um, but it's run by a couple of national charities, and there are some suggested fees, but there's also individual negotiation. So if you wanted to sell your kidney to me or to someone, you and I would meet and we would negotiate a bit with some mediation by these national charities. Uh, but one of the things that's striking, I have a 
a student named Mohammed Akbarpour, who is an Iranian national, and he was recently back in Iran, and he visited some of these institutions. And what he found, and others have reported as well, is that the sellers in this market prefer to remain anonymous. They're not proud of, of having saved someone's life by selling a kidney. So there's something wrong with that market, and I don't quite understand what it is, because we had a somewhat similar debate in the United States at the end of the Vietnam War, when we went from a, a conscription army to a volunteer army, right? So a volunteer army is people who get paid for being soldiers, Americans who get paid for being American soldiers. Um, and one of the questions was, would we come to regard them as mercenaries? You know, would this somehow be a bad thing for them? And it turns out not to be. When someone runs for the Senate today, if he was a Marine, that's a big part of his campaign. You know, it's not his opponents who bring up he was a Marine. It's him. He says, you should vote for me. When I was young, I served my country. Uh, and now I want to continue serving it as, you know, as, as a senior politician. Um, when I get on an airplane in the United States, one of the, as they board the airplane, they, they say, first, will, will people who need extra time and soldiers in uniform board first, right? So I'm, you know, I'm, happy to board behind serving soldiers. And of course, I would be happy to board behind kidney donors as well. Al, before we go today, as someone who tinkers and has spent a lifetime working with markets, which new and emerging markets are you observing at the moment with the most interest? Well, you know, new and emerging sounds so optimistic. Um, I find myself actually paying increasing attention to the attention to the questions of refugee resettlement, um, right? So, in Europe, in the United States, in lots of places, there are refugees. We have to think about what's our policy on this, especially in light of the fact that that if we wanted to have none, we might not be able to, right? We have, you know, many people immigrate to the United States, some of them illegally. That is, we can't prevent them. So the question is, if you can't prevent them, how can you best accommodate them so that they get integrated into the economy? And even if you could prevent them, maybe, you know, in the United States, we've our economy has thrived because we have a rich history of immigration. How should the Europeans think about this? Things like that. And one of the issues, of course, is you can't simply assign refugees where to go, which is often the intention of governments, because refugees are precisely the people who didn't stay where they were if they didn't like it. So in Europe now, we're, you know, they're talking about quota systems and things like that. But, but I think you have to think about refugees not just as individuals but as communities because uh, if you are a person who, for instance, speaks only Chinese or only Spanish and you come to California, you can find work even before your English is good enough to, to work in English. If you're a skilled carpenter, you can find a general contractor who can speak to you in Mandarin and you can be setting beams in place while you're learning English. Whereas if we resettled you in Minnesota, the only there would be enough Chinese language help available so they could tell you how to fill out government assistance forms. But but you wouldn't be working as a skilled carpenter because the 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 guys who employ skilled carpenters in Minnesota like to speak to them in English. Um, so so putting refugees in different places depends on the skills and desires and connections that those refugees have. And right now, the current system of refugee resettlement in Europe doesn't allow that information to be transmitted because there's this rule about first asylum, the first place where they identify you as a refugee, that's where you should stay. Which means that if you're in Greece or Turkey or Hungary, you don't want to talk to them and they don't want to talk to you because neither of you want that you should be there forever. But as a result, people are making these dangerous journeys instead of getting interviewed in Turkey and, and arriving in 
sensible destinations by airplane. They're, they're getting in little boats and sailing across the sea and often drowning. So that's not a good way to run the market. And, uh, and it's a matching market. You can't just choose what you want. You can't just emigrate to Germany or England if you want, because more people will want to go there than they'll want to take. But we ought to be thinking about how to, how to make that process more efficient and humane. Alvin, uh, you do a remarkable job, and I, I thank you very much for, for doing your job and also for taking out your time this morning to have a chat with me. Well, it's, it's wonderful to chat with you. You have been listening to Alvin Roth. He's the winner of the 2012 Nobel Prize for Economics. He, he's a professor of economics at Stanford University and professor emeritus at Harvard University. He's also written a book, the book we were talking about today, called Who Gets What and Why? And, and if you want to get an understanding of what economists can do to, to really help society and, well, to literally save lives with their ideas, then you could get yourself a copy of the book. And to do that, you can go to our website, ideasbooks.org, and click on the link to buy a copy for yourself. And when you're there, if you want, you can also listen to a bunch of other author interviews about things like prisons and dinosaurs, uh, the human body, or, or politics in China, all at ideasbooks.org. So, thanks a lot for listening. Uh, it's, it's really appreciated. My name is Craig Barfoot, and uh, I will listen... You, no, you will listen to th this maybe again. Uh, you know what I mean. Ciao.